It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you the hottest and most thrilling news in science. Actually, it's not just science, it's all the best news in the world. (laughs) Welcome to the show. This week we are joined by New Scientist Executive Editor Richard Webb and reporters Lael Liverpool and Krista Charles. Hi everyone. Hi. Hello. This week we have a stunning look at synthetic life and we have big particle physics news, which does seem to spell more problems for the standard model of particle physics. Yeah, it's increasingly looking like its days are numbered. We also have the latest analysis on COVID vaccines, a special report on climate change and biodiversity, and we're going to the Amazon 66 million years ago. But first, a word from our sponsor, Ryman Prize. Entries for the 2021 Ryman Prize are now open. The Ryman Prize is a £130,000 cash prize for the best discovery, development, advance or achievement that enhances quality of life for older people. It's a New Zealand prize, but it's open to anyone in the world who wants to enter. For details of how to enter, go to rymanprize.com. And we're back with time to quickly remind you that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist. Go to newscientist.com pod20 to subscribe and get your discount. Let's start with the small matter of creating synthetic life. Yeah, just a small story, small (laughs) matter. Uh, This has been going on for a few years now, uh, since Craig Venter's team created what they called a synthetic cell by printing out the minimum number of genes possible for a bacterium to survive and then uploading those genes into a hollowed out bacterial cell. Lyle, you've been looking into the latest update in this story. Yeah, so in that original story, when they used uh, 473 key genes, it was a big breakthrough because they were able to show that the synthetic or minimal cell, as they called it, could grow and divide in the lab to produce little clusters of cells called colonies. But when Venter's team took a closer look at the cells, they noticed that they weren't splitting uniformly and evenly to produce identical daughter cells as most natural bacteria do. Did that mean they'd probably removed too many genes and that some of those were actually needed for proper cell division? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So to try and fix this, um, a team led by Elizabeth Strzokalski at the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology um, and collaborators at the J. Craig Venture Institute and elsewhere, they decided to try to play around with the synthetic genome a bit by reintroducing various genes into the synthetic uh, bacterial cells and then monitoring how those additions affected the way the cells were growing and dividing uh, under the microscope. 
uh, in doing that, they managed to pinpoint seven additional genes that were required to make those cells divide uniformly. And when they added those seven genes, you know, back into the original synthetic minimal cell to produce a new synthetic cell, they found that that was enough to restore normal uniform cell division and growth. Oh, wow. That's very cool. Yeah, it's really exciting because um, synthetic minimal cells are thought to be quite a good analog for what biologists call uh, LUCA or the last universal common ancestor for all life on Earth. So this kind of research can help us to kind of pinpoint which genes are really essential for life. Um, synthetic cells are also really useful tools for research because they're free of some of the complexity of natural cells, which allows them to be easily manipulated and studied by researchers in the lab. And what do researchers want to do with them once they are able to manipulate them this way? Yeah, a lot of things. So um, in future, Strzokowski told me that she hopes um, synthetic cells might be used as kind of living measurement systems or biological sensors. Um, I did ask her the cheeky question of whether we could one day uh, put synthetic cells into people, maybe to track health parameters. Uh, but she said that's still quite a long way off. That's not that cheeky thing to ask. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something worse than that. <laughs> well, I hope um, we'll soon be reporting on the first synthetic bacteria that are, you know, really able to tweak and do manipulate more things, and and eukaryotes as well, more complex organisms. And that what that story should be here soon. I hope. And Krista, you've been working on a story that might pick up right where Lael's synthetic bacteria are heading. Yes, this is some work done by Michael Levin and his team at Tufts University. They've used uh, frog skin cells to create a xenobot, a microscopic living robot, which can heal and power itself. A xenobot? That's awesome. Yes, the team first described xenobots last year. They're named after Xenopus laevis, the frog species where the cells come from. But now they've improved the design of these living robots and have demonstrated new capabilities, including an ability of the bots to sense their environment. Okay, so these things are designed, these are organisms designed on a computer. So their structure's been designed and then the cells have been arranged according to that design. Yes, completely new, unique designs, not like anything seen in nature. And the cells, they work together as a multicellular organism does. Last year's version relied on the contraction of heart muscle cells to move the xenobots, but these new ones are self-propelled by hair-like structures on their surface. They also live between three and seven days longer than their predecessors, which only survive for about seven days, and they can sense their environment to some extent. They turn red when they're exposed to blue light, and uh, these xenobots, they also operate in robot swarms, so a group of individual bots can work together to complete a task. All right, so they, kind of, they show a kind of swarm intelligence like we see in social insects, I guess. Yes, and because they're made from biological material, from cells, they eventually break apart and they're completely biodegradable. So the researchers are hoping that they can be useful for biomedical applications and environmental ones as well. I, I just think this is absolutely incredible research. I love this story. And uh, I was really curious if the researchers uh, think they are more like living organisms or traditional robots, but the researchers themselves, they're not too sure. And one of them said that I don't feel any closer to an answer, whether these are robots, whether these are frogs, whether they're something else entirely. <laughs> something else entirely. Um, thanks, Krista. We'll definitely come back to this story. And now we take stock of our place in the bigger picture of the cosmos or in history. 
Yes, it's the Total Perspective Vortex. Rowan, you've got... I've got the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs. Okay, so we're going back to the day 66 million years ago that ended the reign of the dinosaurs. Yes, but the twist in the tale this week is that it isn't about the dinosaurs, it's about uh, another effect that the asteroid had that's been kind of overlooked. The impact seems to have given us the lush South American rainforests that are so important biologically and ecologically. Okay, so you'll have to explain how that happened, how a massive asteroid that smashed into the Yucatan Peninsula in what is now Mexico could have caused these lush rainforests to spring up. Yeah, so, well, the evidence comes from looking at fossil evidence of what the ecosystem was like before the asteroid hit and what it was like afterwards. And uh, and, and it turns out the fossils are completely different to the things we see now. So the impact wiped out the dinosaurs, but also wiped out all the plant life at the time? Yeah, it seems to have had a massive effect on plants, similarly to knocking out the, the dinos. So a team of paleoecologists have looked at thousands of samples of fossilised pollen and leaves from the region. And uh, yeah, as I say, just before the asteroid hit in the Cretaceous and just after in the Paleocene. And the forest before seems to have been made of ferns and conifers with an open canopy. But afterwards, the asteroid caused plant diversity to decline by about 45%. And by the time it recovered, most of those cone-bearing plants, conifers and the ferns, had disappeared And the rainforest had become dominated by flowering plants, the angiosperms, and it had a thick canopy which only allowed a little light to reach the ground. So do we understand the mechanism for how this the asteroid impact had this effect? Uh, Well, the scientists suggest that because the asteroid killed off these large herbivorous dinosaurs, that they used to trample down and eat all the lower levels of the forest that allowed allowed different plants to come in and all the ash that was chucked up in the air. Once that settled down, it fertilised the soil and that allowed angiosperms, these flowering plants, to come in and dominate. Wow. I I kind of love this, feeling less sort of, you know, angry at the asteroid now, I guess. Yeah, well, sorry to bring you down, but, you know, we can't really (laughs) say uh, mention this rainforest story without saying how much trouble it's in at the moment. Yeah, that's true. So it's taken us, what, 66 million years to create this incredibly rich and diverse ecosystem in in the rainforests. And now it's being destroyed at a rate of, I think it's 10 football pitches per minute or... Yeah, I looked it up. I don't know what it is per minute, but it was 10,000 square kilometres in 2019 and 11,000 square kilometres in 2020. So horrendous deforestation. And now a break for a quick message from Jim Al-Khalili. Hi, I'm Jim Al-Khalili, interrupting your podcast to tell you about What I Believe, a podcast by Humanist UK, exploring the values, convictions and opinions of humanists in the public eye. Each week you'll get to listen to scientists like Richard Dawkins, Helen Chersky, Alice Roberts and me discussing our approaches to life. New episodes go live each Thursday and are available on all the usual places you get your podcasts. Curious? Subscribe and listen to the What I Believe podcast today. Now, just a few days ago, the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii recorded 421 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that's a record amount. It's the first time we've ever had above 420 ppm. And now that means we're 50% 
above the pre-industrial amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It doesn't need saying, but let's say anyway, we are in a climate emergency and not just that, a biodiversity emergency too. And now, Richard, you've just edited a big piece in the magazine this week by Michael LePage looking at why we need to tackle both problems at once, biodiversity and climate. Do you want to give us an example of, of how one problem affects the other? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about this is how we're all so accustomed to, you talked about the climate emergency and the biodiversity emergency, to, to think of them as two separate problems. But, but the more you think about it, the more it's obvious that these two things are interlinked and interlinked both ways. So a warming world puts additional pressure on ecosystems that are already struggling to survive as a result of pollution or as we consume ever more habitat for agriculture, roads and other developments. And where in some cases populations of individual species are already so reduced that they're teetering on the brink of genetic viability. And you can pick any one of a number of examples of that. Alpine flowers, for example, can move higher up the mountain as the planet warms up, but, but they soon run up out of mountain uh, but 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 in the other direction when you have sickening unbalanced ecosystems they lose their ability to provide ecosystem services in the jargon among them being a sink for co2 and other greenhouse gases from the atmosphere so they can themselves become accelerants for global warming the two problems really are interlinked but as you say that means so are the solutions and what's uh, what's interesting or actually probably terrifying is a better way of putting it uh, is that we haven't actually seen much warming yet beyond the bounds of of natural variations that the climate has experienced over the past few million years and so we're already seeing big changes ecologically and sort of climatically but we're going to see more much more yeah and it's it's difficult to disentangle the effects of climate change from other effects putting pressure on biodiversity especially on land but in in the sea where there's kind of more freedom for species to move about it's somewhat easier and and there we've had studies showing that the range of species including mammals birds fish and plankton have shifted their ranges by by hundreds of kilometers and there are other effects that are more subtle oceanic low oxygen zones are expanded because oxygen is less soluble in warm water and that's forcing species like sharks to come closer to the surface where they become more vulnerable to being netted by fishing boats but but yes it's fair to say that even what we've seen so far is before bigger and slower expected effects such as the melting of permafrost in polar regions and of the antarctic ice sheet they've barely started yet So in October, we've got the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, and that's the biggest biodiversity summit in a decade. That's the one that was supposed to be last year, but was delayed because of COVID. And then in November, just the next month, we've got COP26, the big climate change conference. So we've got a a massive couple of months this year for our future, for the planet's future. And what we're learning about, what you've been saying, and what our piece says, basically, is that the links between climate change and diversity mean well, it doesn't make any sense to have these two summits separately, really, does it? Well, yes, it's, it's, that's a very interesting point. And some people do think they should be mer- merged because in the, in the words of one environmental organisation, Resolve, we can't save biodiversity without staying below 1.5 degrees of global warming. And we can't stay below 1.5 degrees without saving biodiversity. And definitely the word on on the street is the two agendas the biodiversity and climate change agendas don't seem to be speaking to one another and that's obviously not a good thing but but others think you know 
what we need is facts on the ground here and action. It's not a perfect situation, but the last thing we need is time and energies to be diverted on some gigantic bureaucratic reorganization <laughs> when we need to be finding solutions and finding them fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't, it can't be an easy an easy thing to merge these two gigantic organizations that are already struggling to to do that what they're doing on their own. But apart from that, um, what do we need to do? Well, this is one thing we get we're into in the magazine piece, but but one thing is that climate policies have to take biodiversity into account and, and too often they don't. And a, a big example there is the push to make biofuel as a green fuel with supposedly net zero emissions, but often yeah. that isn't far from the case because it comes as a huge ecological cost because biofuels re- require farmland to grow generally. So you end up chopping down ecosystems to grow the crops to make the biofuel. And again, that cuts both ways too. We know that a minimum of 1.5 degrees warming by mid-century and probably more is, pardon the pun, baked in. So efforts to conserve biodiversity have got to take account of that. And an example we give there in the in, is attempts to revive populations of the Iberian lynx in the south of Spain. They, they've been a partial success, but the, the sad fact is that under the climate change regime expected for that part of the world in the coming decades, the habitats the lynx have been reintroduced to will be unlivable for them by the second half of this century. Yeah. Um, look, I'm sure no one thinks that we have to preserve biodiversity just for sort of fringe benefits and to help the lynx survive. But you mentioned ecosystem services earlier. You know, spell out some of those benefits for us. Yeah, ecosystem services is a terrible word, but the the point is that what ecosystems do for us saves us trillions of dollars a year. Some of that is direct monetary returns, such as from sustainable wood, improved agricultural yields ecotourism, whatever. But most of it is actually freebies that we take for granted that we would otherwise have to shell out for. It's clean air and water, it's pollination, it's pest control, it's nutrient recycling, it's carbon sequestration, it's protection against floods, it's greater resilience to extreme weather and natural disasters. It's fewer zoonotic diseases such as COVID-19, which we we know are caused by our depredations of nature. And just think of how much the pandemic alone has has cost us on all of these things mentioned that are worth trillions of dollars to us a year and yet we take it all for granted the good news i guess is that it is actually quite cheap to protect land uh, and certainly as you've been saying it's cheap compared to what it costs us if we don't do it yeah and you can think of it like like capital investment it's like building roads and bridges they don't generate returns themselves but they lay the groundwork for increased economic activity now estimates vary but but and it depends what you're talking about but every dollar spent on healthy ecosystems generates something between 3 and 75 dollars in return so so this is a matter of hard-headed economic self-interest above all. The, the madness is, is not making these investments. The madness is depleting our capital reserves with nature as we have been doing. Now it's COVID update time. A few weeks ago, we were reporting on how some EU countries had suspended the use of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for people over 65. That suspension was relaxed, but since then there have been concerns over possible blood clots linked with the vaccine, especially in younger people. 
Lael, you were listening into the European Medicines Agency conference on Wednesday. What's going on? Yeah, so uh, the EMA has concluded that these unusual blood clotting events, uh, including cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVST, which uh, is a rare type of clot in the brain, uh, should be listed as a very rare side effect of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, but they emphasize that uh, the benefits of the vaccine overall continue to outweigh its risks. Its safety committee had been reviewing 86 reports of rare blood clotting events among 25 million people who had received the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine in the EEA and the UK as of 22 March, uh, 18 of which were fatal. So that's a rate of about four cases per million people or one death per million people who had the vaccine. And to give a, a bit of context, estimates of the incidence of CVST in the wider population vary because it's quite rare. But on the upper end, it's thought there are about 15 cases per million people per year. But the combination of CVST or other rare clots with low levels of blood platelets, um, so particles that help the blood clot, uh, are particularly unusual. And it's this unusual combination that's really at the center of the current concerns. Uh, that's why the EMA Safety Committee has concluded that these unusual blood clotting events uh, should be listed as a, a very rare side effect of the vaccine. And it also concluded that there was currently no available evidence of specific risk factors for these side effects, uh, such as age or gender. Um, and as I said, they did emphasize that the overall benefits of the vaccine continue to outweigh uh, the risks. So in the UK, three of those fatal clots, which you which you point out are very, very rare, were in people under 30. So obviously that's tragic, but again, uh, it's important to emphasize how rare. And as you've emphasized, it's important to carry on with vaccination efforts because the benefits still far outweigh the risks, right? Yeah, uh, that's the basic conclusion. But I think it's a really fine balance. And, and we're seeing different countries making different decisions following the EMA's review. So, uh, for instance, Belgium has now said it will only be giving the vaccine to people over the age of 55, uh, which is similar to a number of other European countries. Uh, and in contrast to what the EMA concluded about there being uh, insufficient evidence to confirm that age or gender uh, is a risk factor, the UK's uh, vaccination advisory body has uh, recommended that people under 30 should be offered an alternative to the AstraZeneca vaccine if another vaccine is available. Uh, and that's because uh, for healthy people under 30, the risks from catching COVID-19 are low. So the UK's vaccine advisory body thinks that the benefit-risk ratio for this particular group is more finely balanced. Of course, the good news in all of this is that the general rollout of, of vaccines um, across the UK and elsewhere means that a coming third wave, which people anticipate, at least shouldn't be as bad, right, if we vaccinated most vulnerable people. That, that seems to be right. So scientists and health experts in the UK think there will be a third wave, but it shouldn't lead to the sorts of hospitalizations and deaths that we've seen in the first two, uh, because even after one vaccine, um, the risk of severe illness goes down. Now, Richard, it's fortunate you're here because we had you on a few weeks ago when everyone was jumping up and down on the grave of the standard model of particle <laughs> physics. <laughs> and uh, and you very sensibly showed it how that wasn't quite the case yet. But, um, you know, the poor old standard models under attack again, isn't it? Yeah, and that swooshing noise you just heard was me putting my particle physics cape on. <laughs> a wild guess, uh, Rowan. What you're talking about is the muon G minus two experiment at Fermilab. Am I right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I perhaps should have mentioned that. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> uh, it's funny because uh, I looked this up, and you know we've been reporting this for twenty years. Actually, um, one of the first stories we wrote about this funny result about the muon, 
Uh, and now there's more funny things going on. So, uh, Richard, maybe tell us what the issue is. Yeah, well, maybe the first thing to say is that the muon is an absolutely fascinating particle, says the particle <laughs> physics geek. <laughs> it's essentially a particle that is exactly the same as the electron, the familiar particle circling the atomic nucleus and making electronics work, except that it's about 200 times heavier, about 207 times, in fact. And when it, when the muon was first discovered in, in 1936 by physicists studying the makeup of cosmic radiation raining down on Earth from outer space, the physicist Isidore Rabi famously said, who ordered that? Because this was way before the standard model existed, and there was simply no place for this extra particle that seemingly had nothing to do with conventional matter at all. It opened the door on the idea that there was this whole other world of unknown particles, the menagerie of particles that we now know exists and that the standard model describes so well. Yeah, I was looking. Um, so we talked about the standard model a few times. So I was looking at old stories uh, in New Scientist about muons, and I found this a lovely description of the standard model by Kate McAlpine. And she said, the standard model of particle physics is like Gormenghast, a sprawling <laughs> castle constructed by tacking on new rooms as needed with no underlying grand design. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons you can be down on the standard model as as beautifully precise and with the great predictive power it has. It doesn't say anything about gravity. It doesn't say anything about dark energy, dark matter, all those components of the cosmos that make up most of the cosmos. But yeah, what that what that quote is getting at is the standard model requires something like 20 or 25 so-called free parameters, basically random numbers like the masses of various particles and the strengths of various interactions that you have to feed into the theory by hand to make it work. And that's something that physicists do not like at all. Now, what the the muon G-2 experiment has found is that the muon isn't behaving quite as it should, according to the standard model. And it's found that actually with in the latest result with a 3.3 sigma degree of certainty, but when you combine that with previous measurements that also found an anomaly, that statistical significance climbs to 4.2 sigma, meaning there's a chance the results are a statistical fluctuation is about one in 40,000. Okay, and as we know from when we had you on the other day, it's all about five sigma, and we need a five sigma uh, degree of certainty to to call it a discovery, uh, which means the standard model lives on for now. Um, But look, is the result telling us about a new force? Or, you know, if the result stands up, would it be telling us about <laughs> yeah. a new force or a new kind of particle or or both? With all those caveats, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yes, possibly. Basically, you can think of any particle like the muon or, or an electron, for that matter, as a tiny spinning magnet. And what muon G-2 has measured it is a tiny variation in the rate at which this magnet is spinning from what the standard model predicts. Now, it's complicated. The standard model predicts this gyromagnetic ratio or G should be about two or not quite. Hence the experiment's name, G minus two, subtract two. And what the experiment is trying to measure is tiny deviations from zero. That's a kind of particle physics joke. But now the the thing is that the standard model already predicts tiny variations from the value two or zero caused by the effect of various particles popping up in the quantum vacuum that the standard model says fills all of space and 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 jostle the muon around the standard model predicts the size of this effect due to all the particles it predicts to a very high degree of 
precision. What G minus two has found is a variation from this variation, if it makes any sense, which could be the effect of other particles in the quantum vacuum that are not described by the standard model. Make any sense at all? Uh, A little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it did. Um, But I, I guess the interesting thing about this is that when we had the Large Hadron Collider result the other day, um, we're not going to be able to get any further on that because the experiment's not going to be giving more data again for another couple of years. But the Fermilab experiment, they've only analysed about, what, 10% of the data. So we should be able to strengthen on or not the sigma value that we've got so far. Yeah, they've got data from it. This was data from their first run, and they've got another three in the bag, I think. So yeah, in the, over the course of the next year or so, we may have more, or it might disappear again, as these anomalies tend to do if they are statistical fluctuations more often than not. But we should soon be able to tell. And it's fair to say as well that this muon anomaly, as as you alluded to at the beginning, has been around for quite a few decades. A previous experiment at CERN first spotted it, and then an experiment at Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York did. So these additional measurements will hopefully be coming soon and may also help us to narrow down what sort of exotic particles might exist. But it is a might. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Richard Webb, Leo Liverpool and Krista Charles for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. Just before we go, remember, do listen to our sister show, Escape Pod. This week, it's all about unsung heroes of science. Thank you, everyone. And remember, once more, as a valued listener, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist for 20% off. Go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 and subscribe. Goodbye for now and take care out there. Bye. 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 Cheerio. This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.